0: Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. In the book of 1 Samuel, we're introduced to the first two kings in Israel, Saul and David. Both of them were appointed by God. Uh, Saul was really more, however, the choice of the people. And let me kind of explain what I mean by that. The children of Abraham, at the time Saul became king, had a number of enemies surrounding them. Uh, There were the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, and the Ammonites. And, And all these nations had one thing in common that the people of Israel didn't have, and Israel envied them for it, and that was they had a leader that they called a king. A king was a person who was responsible to protect the people and lead them into battle when necessary. But Israel didn't have a king. Uh, Their leader was God. John Turner uh, shares the problem with being led by God. He says, following God is hard. After all, he's invisible. (laughs) You never know when he's going to show up and intervene and when he's not. Now, he's constantly working, that's true. But the vast majority of his work is hidden from our sight, underground behind the scenes. God would show up when conditions were bad when the people were being oppressed by some foreign power and he would raise up a leader, a judge or a leader to call out an army and vanquish the foe, but then he would disappear again, waiting for the next crisis. And the people of Israel wanted something a little more tangible than that. They, they wanted a, a succession of leaders like the other nations had. They wanted uh, to point back, and look back over their their history and say, we had this leader here and this leader there, and 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 uh, they wanted a, a royal dynasty. They wanted a, a royal household. They they wanted all the trimmings that come with that—the pomp and circumstances and high visibility. They they wanted a standing army. You know, just in case. But as Turner says, God hadn't given them any of those. From God's perspective, He was their king. He was their fearless, tireless leader. He could trump any of those earthly kings in all ways except one. He wasn't very visible, very touchable. Following God is hard. He's invisible, and he's often silent. And so the people were getting tired of following an invisible king. And prompted by fear, they went to the prophet Samuel and said, we want a king like the other nations have. And they demanded a king. Now, at first, Samuel was very reluctant to grant their wish. We're told in 1 Samuel 8, 6 and following that Samuel was displeased with their request and he went to the Lord for guidance. And God said to him, do everything they say to you, for it's me they're rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king anymore. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And so God gives the people what they wanted. You know, I've often uh, thought about what George McDonald said about prayer. He said that, Uh, sometimes when we ask for the wrong things, God will give it to us. He says sometimes he grants them. He put it this way. He says, a father will never give a child a stone who asks for bread, but I'm not sure he will never give a child a stone if he asks for a stone. And his point is that sometimes he will give us the stone to show us that it's a stone. (laughs) And so God gave Israel what they wanted. God gave them a king. In fact, he gave them the king of their dreams. Saul, we're told, was a very impressive young man from a substantial family. He was tall and handsome. He was the kind of person people could be proud of. He had a kingly appearance. He was just what they wanted. And so even though God appointed Saul king, he he was in some ways more the choice of the people. Now, both the kings, David and Saul, would start their reign with the same potential. But whereas Saul would become more and more self-willed, David would be yielded to God and continue to be yielded to God throughout his reign. And that makes a huge difference between the two people. One of the first would become more outwardly great. The other would become great in, in his spirit. In fact is, I want you to do just a, maybe a little bit of imaginative thinking with me here for just a moment, okay? Picture God looking down on two awaiting destinies. And he's offering each of these destinies a portion of himself. The first destiny steps up and says, you know, God, I, I would like to have a portion of your power. I, I want power to succeed in life. I want power to rule. I want power to accomplish great things for you. You know, and you think about that, and you think, who doesn't want to succeed? You know, I, I work with men a lot through the years, and, and one of the things i found that almost all men have in common is they, they, they fear failure. <laughs> they want to be significant, and they want the significance that comes with success. And so the, de- the, the first destiny, asked for something that's really natural. He asked for God's power. Now imagine God granting this man his request, and but with it, he gives him a, a, a really severe warning. He says this, he says, be careful here because power only touches the outer man. Therefore, what you're asking for is a dangerous request. An outward power will always unveil what's on the inside, so guard your heart or this gift will destroy you. Now continuing on in our imaginative thinking, now think... Imagine the second destiny being asked what it wants as well. And and he says, instead of requesting power, he says, I want an inner working of God in my life. He desires not so much outward greatness as he does becoming a man after God's own heart. Now, let's say that God grants this man his request too, but with it comes a warning And the warning is this God says to him, What you've asked for is a good thing, it's a glorious thing, but it can be accomplished only through great pain. Like the farmer rips open the soil to plant his seed, so your heart will need to be broken open if I'm going to plant my seed, my nature in it, and it's going to grow into a man like me. Now, if a similar choice had been offered you, what would you choose? Honestly, not not the right answer right now, because I know you're all going to give me the right answer. But honestly, what would you choose? Would you choose a life of growing significance for God, or would you choose a life of growing in God-likeness? Would you choose to be God's successes, or would you choose to be God's servants? Would you choose power, or would you choose brokenness? actually that's not a hard question to answer we all want power without pain <laughs> and we're convinced that if anybody can handle it we can if god gives us power without pain we'll 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 do just fine you know we're smart enough to understand that most people can't handle it <laughs> but but we can we know how to handle it quite well. I mean, I tell God, you know, I, I can handle being rich and continue to keep you first in my life. <laughs> or, or I know how to handle success and continue to serve with godly humility. Or, or I know how uh, I could be powerful and continue to have a servant's heart. But, but could I? <laughs> Only God knows the answer to that. And so we, we all want success without pain because we're sure that we can keep God first without having to suffer, but can we? Well, in 1 Samuel 15, we have the account of God's rejection of Saul and, and his choice of David. And, and when, I, when I read this passage of Scripture, I, I start thinking about what happened. How did Saul, who started out so good, become unqualified? And and what made David desirable to God here? What makes one man more usable to God than another? What makes one woman, uh, someone God can work through, more than another? And I believe there are are character traits that God honors in his children and that if we avoid Saul's errors, and, and discover David's secret, we too can become men and women after God's own heart. And so that's, that's what I want to talk about this morning. And this morning, then, I want to focus on Saul's life, even though it's a series on David, I want to focus on Saul's life this morning and, and look at where he falls short because we're going to hold that in contrast to who David is. In order to do this, uh, we're going to look in at a couple significant moments in Paul's, Saul's life as king. I'm going to have trouble. I'm going to call him Paul all the time because I just did a Paul series. But, and, and I want to observe from these experiences how he responded, and this is going to serve as a backdrop for our, our study on the life of David. And what I'm particularly interested in in this sermon is how Paul, Saul started where he changed, and what happened in his heart. And and this morning, we're going to be really covering a large portion of Scripture, uh, 1 Samuel 9 through 15. So that's like seven chapters. So I'm not going to work our way through it or anything like that. I'm just going to pull out a couple moments in his life that kind of reveal what's happening in him and how he's evolving and how he's changing. And my intent today is just to give a broad picture of Saul's life. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he could have been the George Washington of his people. Instead, he's kind of more the Benedict Arnold, the great traitor. But he had the potential of being the father of the nation. And he starts saying, What went wrong? What happened? Well, I believe that Saul's problem was that his inner resources did not keep pace with his fast-growing power, and therefore his successes came between him and God. Saul is like a man walking on this tightrope between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Saul. And first he starts to fall off on one side of the tightrope, and then he overcompensates, and he starts to go off on the other side. And he feels these two kingdoms tugging at him, and he's trying to decide which way he's going to go. And for a while, he could have gone either way, but eventually Saul makes his choice. And that's what makes the difference. In these two people's lives. Well, we're first introduced to Saul in 1 Samuel 9, and we see Saul as a handsome young man on a mission to discover, to find some lost donkeys. It's interesting to observe where he journeyed looking for these lost donkeys. We're told in chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go out and look for the donkeys. And Listen to this next verse. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, through the area around Shalisha. But they did not find them. They went into the district of Shalem, But the donkeys were not there, and so they passed through the territory of Benjamin, and they still didn't find him. Is that somebody obsessed with the task or what? (laughs) Do you realize how much ground he covers looking for his father's lost animals here? He and his servant go well over 100 miles across Craig, Rocky Craigs and looking for his father's donkey. And, and that gives us our first glimpse into the life of this man. Saul had a formidable will. In fact, he was so determined that he looked so long and so hard that he said to his servant in verse 5 of chapter 9, We better go home now. My father will be more worried about us than about the donkeys. They had been gone so long looking for these lost donkeys. It was then that his servant said to him, why don't we look up the prophet Samuel who lives in this region? Maybe he can help us. Saul agreed and he was willing to give him anything and everything he had if he would help them. And, of course, that's the time Samuel finds him and God's providence is working this all together and that's when he tells him that he's going to be the next king and all that kind of stuff, but... What we're looking at right now is when Saul had his mind on a task, he pressed on until he accomplished it. The crucial question, however, that determines whether Saul's going to be great in God's eyes or not is, can he redirect that strong will toward God's purposes or will he use his will to serve his own ends in life? Will he use his will for himself or will he use it for God? You see, the problem with having a strong will is good because you accomplish things you would never accomplish if you didn't have it. But the problem with it is your will can start competing with God's will for control in your life. And people with a strong will often have a problem submitting to God. Having a strong will means nothing if, if your will isn't lined up with God's objectives You know, some of us have made plans for our life, and we have the drive of Saul. We're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen, but in the process, we find ourselves bumping heads with God. He's calling us away from self-centered preoccupation. He's calling us to a life of total surrender to him, but our will is pushing us on to accomplish our purposes you know, how many of you are willing to exert unbelievable drive to obtain some earthly goal you have while well, kingdom goals get little emphasis in your busy schedules because your will is used for your own ends? A second thing I notice about Saul is that initially, at least, he has a fairly humble spirit. At first, it seems that Saul's going to be a really good king. He doesn't, he's not proud when he's told that he's going to become the king of the nation. He begins his reign uh, just entrusting himself to God. Immediately following his inauguration, we're told in chapter 10, verse 27, that some troublemakers said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised him, and they brought no gifts to him. But listen to this next phrase. But Saul kept silent. There, there's no self-promotion here. At first, at least, he's not demanding that people respect him. If God's truly called him, and then God's going to have to be the one to raise him up and give him stature in the eyes of the people. He entrusts himself to God, and he doesn't have to wait long uh, until God raises him up. In chapter 11, we see that Nahash, the Ammonite, is besieging a town in Israel, and the people in that town, knowing they can't withstand him, and they're going to be defeated by him, said to him, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. In other words, they said, we're surrendering, don't kill us, we'll, we'll come underneath your control. But Nahash, the Amoranite, replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I can gouge out the right eye of every one of you and bring disgrace on all of Israel. So yeah, you can surrender, but I'm going to gouge out everyone in your your town's right eye. And when they heard this, they, they panicked. And in desperation, they snuck a messenger out of the city and they sent him to Saul begging for help. And when Saul heard their words, we're told in verse 6, he says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he burned with anger. And he took a pair of oxen and he cut them in pieces. And he sent the pieces to the, uh, by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, This is what I'm going to do to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And the terror of the Lord fell on the people and, and they turned out as one man. And they gathered together at this town and, and uh, at Bezek and the men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And when they all gathered together and Saul saw he had an army, he sent the messenger back to the town saying, say this to uh, Jabesh Gilead, by the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be delivered. We're going to come and deliver you from these oppressors. And when the messenger went and reported the news to the men of Jabesh, they were elated and they told the Ammonites, okay, tomorrow we're going to surrender to you about noon (laughs) And you can do whatever you want to us at that time. And so the next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. And during the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites. And they slaughtered them until the heat of day. And those who survived were scattered so that not even two men were left together. At this point, Saul has established his right to reign. In the eyes of his people, he's a hero. So much so that in verse 12, we're told that the people went to Samuel and said, who were those people that said we didn't want him to be king over us and didn't give gifts? We want to kill him. (laughs) That's how much they were excited about their new king. And at first, it seems like he's going to be a great king, a God-fearing king. Saul trusted God. He gave God credit for the victory. That's the way it started for Saul. But over time, something changed. As Saul's power increased, his inner man doesn't keep pace with his growing reputation. You know, it's been said that more people are destroyed by success than by failure. That that that's true for, for Saul. I Probably one of my favorite things to do is read the devotional classics. I just love the devotional classics. And one of the things I found that they almost all have in common is they're almost all written by uh, men and women who have a deep awareness of their need for God. And, and, and that's where God wants us. He wants us to be aware of our, our constant need for him. Paul Tripp in his leadership book, Lead, uh, tells... Uh, the church, he says, God will not surrender His glory to another. He's not willing that we take credit for what He alone can do. He will not lead. He will lead us into those moments when we face humiliation of our self-glory. <laughs> those moments when it all comes crashing down, when when sin is exposed or where leadership is taken away. Those moments are not judgment, but rescuing mercy. God loves us, and He's drawing us again to Himself. To live and to lead once again with inside the loving boundaries he has set for us. Well, Saul's allegiance is starting to turn from God to self. The next time we see Saul in action, we see Saul's self-confidence growing. And uh, it's interesting because... As I said, the greatest test God can give us sometimes is success. And God wants us to succeed because he wants to bless his children. But that very success he gives us is the very thing sometimes that comes between us and him. And we start to have more confidence in our ability to handle things on our own. Success, even when it obviously comes from God, is a great temptation. And it inflates our feelings of self-sufficiency. I 'm going to skip the next slide here because I'm going to skip ahead in in chapter thirteen then, with Saul still looking to God and depending on him, we see that his dependency in self is also growing. Saul now has a, a, amassed a small band of men to protect Israel, a small army he's, he's a, a gather them together in, in a location. And the nations around him don't like seeing the Israelites have an army. And so they join together to come against Saul and to attack him. And so the surrounding countries start gathering around Saul's little army. And Saul's worried by this but he doesn't know where to turn except to God. And so he calls for the prophet Samuel who says, I can be there in seven days, and he's saying seven days, you know, uh, but he says, I can be there in seven days and, and then I can pray that God will guide you. And so Saul waited patiently for the prophet to come. Maybe I should say impatiently. And as he waited, his army began to lose heart, and he watched his men leaving because they were afraid. In verse Sam, Samuel 13, verses 6 through 7, we're told that the men of Israel saw what a tight spot they were in because they were hard-pressed by the enemy, and they tried to hide in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and cisterns, and they're even hiding in cisterns in the ground. Some of them crossed the Jordan River to escape into the land of Gad in Gilead and Gilead, Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal and his men trembled with fear. And there's Saul watching his army dispersing. They're surrounded by All these armed forces and day one goes by and men start leaving because they say, we're not a match for this group. And then the next day, more men leave and three days, more men leave. And you start wondering if there's going to be anybody left. And by the seventh day, when Samuel hadn't arrived yet, Saul panics and he takes things into his own hands. And he decides that he's going to offer a sacrifice to God, something he was not permitted to do. So he took on himself the role of a prophet After all, he was the king, and king can do anything he wants, right? This is an overstep for Saul, and he met God on his terms rather than God's established way. And we're told that when Samuel finally arrived and saw what Saul had done, he started offering sacrifices that only a prophet or priest was allowed to do. He said to him, How foolish! You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought a man after his own heart. The Lord's already appointed him to be leader of the people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Tim Chester suggests that, you know, we might feel like we should have some sympathy for Saul, because his army was hemorrhaging soldiers. They were leaving. And God wasn't showing up. And so Saul acts as though God would not act. He didn't keep the Lord's command because he didn't really trust the Lord to follow through. And this act of independent self-confidence cost Saul his kingdom. The first sign that we're going the way of Saul is we take matters into our own hands and try to do God's work for him. That's what Saul does again in chapter 15, following a battle where Saul has been given clear instructions of what God wants him to do. He wants him to destroy the enemy and everything that the enemy owns, and Saul kept for himself the spoils of the battle, something he was clearly forbidden to do. And again, Samuel comes along and calls him out and asks him what he has done. And Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Uh, 1 Samuel 15, verses 19 and 21. Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul's response was, well, I did obey the Lord. (laughs) I went on the mission he assigned to me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back their king, uh, Agag, which he wasn't supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to bring anybody back. Then he blames the soldiers. He says the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder. The best of which was going to be devoted to God. (laughs) We're going to offer some for sacrifices to him at Gilgal. In other words, he's telling God, don't worry, you're going to get your share of the loot too. That's not a good thing to tell God, okay? But Samuel replied, Does God, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Samuel here calls Saul's actions arrogance. How were they arrogant? He was doing himself the things that only God should be Allowed to do. He was following his rules rather than God's rules. And the sad thing is, the same thing happens to us more than we want to admit it. We often find ourselves growing more and more independent of God over time. We start relying on our own wisdom instead of looking to God for direction. It might start subtly, it may be as in the case with Saul, because God isn't giving us what we want when we want it, when we need it. It's hard following an invisible God. He didn't send Samuel in time, so Saul thought he would have to take things into his own hands. And and sometimes when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want or in the time we want we reason, if I don't do things for myself, it's just not gonna happen. And we start to think that God is really not involved in the details of our lives, and we find ourselves doing more and more to produce the outcomes we want in life. And soon we find ourselves relying completely on our own gifts and our own wisdom and our own strategies to make life work. We start to trust the current trends in psychology or counseling more than relying on God. We rely on the latest marketing techniques or leadership principles more than being guided by God. We find security in what we have in the bank more than in trusting in God. We rely on our ability to do things more than we rely on prayer because prayer is a waste of time. You've got to make life work for yourself. And we begin to use God's word as a book of principles from which if we keep these principles, our life will work more than as viewing it as a way to come to know God. And all these things become substitutes for knowing God. It's what I call going the way of Saul. It's not an outright rejection of God. It's simply living as though he doesn't matter. Sky Jetney points out that many people serving God today are really practical deists. A deist is a person who believes that God created the world with certain principles that govern life, and then he left it on its own to function. The analogy they use is that of a watchmaker. A watchmaker makes a watch, and then he has no more involvement with the watch. The watch was made to function on its own without continued involvement. And Jetney says this. He says, deism, unlike atheism, affirms God's existence and created, affirms that God exists and that he created the universe. In other words, there is a God. God. But it believes that God is now distant and relatively uninvolved in the matters of ordinary life. Like a watchmaker, God constructed the cosmos and put all kinds of cogs and springs and natural laws in place, and then he wound it up before stepping away, and now the universe runs automatically without requiring his direct involvement. The result of this kind of thinking is that people often stop seeking God's will for their lives. They begin to live life using their own God-given wisdom instead of calling out to God. And soon they find themselves serving themselves using God's principles. In other words, a relationship with God is replaced with principles for living. Jetney, who is the managing editor of Leadership Journal, a publication of Christianity Today, said this. He said, a few years ago, my colleagues at Leadership Journal interviewed an influential church leader, one, others throughout the world had copied his programs and the processes of his church. And during the interview, he was asked this question He was asked, What is distinctly spiritual about the kind of leadership you do? And he says, There's nothing distinctly spiritual about my leadership. He says, One of the criticisms I get is your church is so corporate. And I say, Okay, you're right. Is that a bad thing? He says, The principle's a principle, and God created all the principles. And Jetney wisely says this. He says the the worldview behind his statement is the same that is held by deism. God created the cosmos with certain knowable, immutable laws. Among them are things like the law of gravity, thermodynamics, and mathematics, but also it has expanded to include things like leadership and relationships and business and laws of relationships and real laws of business. And in order to function properly, our task is to discover what these laws are and translate them into applicable principles. In this view, God is the law writer, the principle creator, the watchmaker. He says this understanding of God informs how many Christians approach God's word. They believe the scriptures are nothing more than a, a divine instruction manual for life, a resource from which we can draw principles that may then be applied to any challenge or dilemma and help us be successful. He says when the Bible is seen primarily as a depository of divine principles for life, it fundamentally changes the way we engage God's word rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communication with him. We search the scripture for applicable principles that we may employ to control our worlds this is not Christianity. This is Christian deism. In other words, we replace a relationship with God for a relationship with biblical principles. He says it causes us to reduce faith to principles, divine laws, applicable instructions, five steps to a more godly marriage, how to raise your kids God's way, biblical laws of leadership, managing your, your finances with kingdom principles, etc. But he says this, but discovering and applying these principles does not actually require a relationship with God. Like a deist, you can put these principles into practice without God being involved at all. God can be set aside while we remain in control of our lives. It's so easy for us to start replacing God with other things, even his own principles. Of life, these principles are true, but you don't stop there with these principles. For a summary of Saul's life, Samuel says this: First Samuel fifteen seventeen. Although you were once small in your own eyes, you were insignificant, and you understood that. Did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Then in verse nineteen. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? The story of Saul is the story of a man who was once small in his own eyes, but God made him great. When he became great, he responded by feeling great. When he began to feel great, he lost his sense of need for God. And soon he's living in disobedience to God, independent of God, And so God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to a man who will be surrendered to him. Saul's life is a story of a man who becomes increasingly independent of God and over time relies more and more on his own resources instead of looking to God for help. So God tells him, now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command." the phrase that jumps out to me is God's looking for men and women with his heart. The difference between Saul and David is whereas Saul grew more self-reliant, David continued throughout his life to be dependent on God. And so my questions for you this morning are these. Is your life, or is your heart, I should say, more yielded to God now than when? Than it once was. Are you becoming more yielded to God over time or less yielded to God? Having grown into a mature believer, do you no longer feel an urgency for God? I mean, you just are making life work now. Do you have a growing sense of independence in your life? Do what you want and let God kind of back you up. Do you reason to yourself, if my life's going to work, I have to make it work myself? Is prayer as critical to you as it was at the beginning? Are you a practical deist? Let's pray. Lord, the the old hymn says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Lord, that's the case with all of us. We are so quick to wander from your path, to, to start to become, live independent of you. Help us to understand what it means to stay in this place of continual surrender. Help us not just to rely on our own wisdom in life. Help us not just to use the Bible to make life work for us. Help us to understand its primary purpose is to bring us into a relationship with you. And yes, the principles of God do work in our life. And yes, we're required to be obedient to them and all these things. But even bigger than that, he's bringing us into this reliving relationship with himself. And sometimes our Christianity gets in the way. Forgive us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.